Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. You may be seated. Y'all ever been at a restaurant and the server brings your food? And they lay it down and they go, enjoy your meal. And you go, you too. Anybody ever done that? Then you're walking out and you're paying and the, the, the cashier says, come back and see us. And you go, you too. Right? So I wished a few people a happy Mother's Day this morning. They said, you too. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, I want to certainly wish all mothers a happy Mother's Day, but I also want to put others' minds at ease. Uh, mother's Day for many people is a very difficult day. Uh, for many of us, it may not be. It may be a wonderful day to celebrate our mothers. But there are some who, for various reasons, this is a hard day. And I've, I, for the past six years since I've been here, I've never preached a Mother's Day sermon because I never want to add to someone's sadness or to their misery. But I do, in lieu of preaching a Mother's Day sermon, always like to offer a Mother's Day prayer. So would you pray with me, please? Righteous Father, we're so thankful that we can assemble together today. We are thankful for the mothers that have been loving and nurturing and that have set a course for us to be good people. For those, Father, that have had an enormous hand in us becoming Christians, we're grateful for them. But Father, for those, for whatever the reason may be that this is a difficult day for them, I'd just like to ask that you would bring them a measure of peace. And I pray, Father, that you'll bring them comfort. Help us always to be mindful of one another and to think of others above ourselves. And we pray that whatever this day means to anyone, that they can find happiness and smiles along the way. Be with them all, be with us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are words that we use often in the church, and we we know what the words mean, like gospel uh, or Savior or Lord, right? If if I were to say that to any of you, you'd go, oh, yeah, 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 I know exactly what that means. But now, if you lived in first century Rome and you used those terms, it didn't have the Christianization to it uh, that it does today. As a matter of fact, in first century Rome, if you were to use the word Lord, people would think, oh, Caesar. If you use the word Savior, they would think specifically of Caesar Augustus, who 
uh, after years of civil war, put an end to the civil war, reunited the entire Roman Empire, and brought about what the, the Romans called the Pax Romanum. Romanum? Romanum? I don't know. I'm Southern, however you say that in Latin. Uh, the Peace of Rome. And that was the golden age of the Roman Empire. And if you were to use the word gospel, uh, you could find that word used several times of historians speaking about the good news of the birth of this or that Caesar. So these terms that we use as Christians, we have an understanding of what they mean for us, but at that time they meant something totally different. As a matter of fact, it was really political propaganda. But yet we use these same terms in relation to the good news of Jesus. Jesus is our Lord, not Caesar. And Jesus is our Savior. In the second century, Christians faced death because they refused to say Lord Caesar, and they would say Lord Christ instead. Tertullian, who lived around 200 uh, AD CE is what we use today, he said Christians faced the accusation of treason most of all against the Roman religions. And why was that? It's because Christians didn't participate in the cultic civil ceremonies of the empire. And so because of that, a lot of them were rounded up in the second and third century, and they were put to death because of it. And so rather than saying, Lord Caesar, the Christian would say, Lord Christ. And there are a few accounts, uh, one of which is one of the earliest accounts, uh, a fellow by the name of Polycarp. He was put, well, actually he was arrested, and, and his location was found out because uh, a couple of Christian women were actually tortured until they gave up his location. So they go and they find him, the Roman soldiers do, and, and he opens the door and he welcomes them in and he actually f feeds them a meal. And, and he says, if you don't mind, I know you're going to arrest me, but uh, if, let me pray a little while. And, and so the Roman soldiers were so moved by his hospitality and his generosity. So they sat and they ate and they let him pray and then they take him back to Rome. And essentially they say, if you will say that Caesar is Lord and if you will burn incense to Caesar, we'll let you live. And Polycarp, who was in his 80s at the time, refused to do that. So even in the first century, there was the accusation that, you know, Christians weren't entirely loyal to the empire. In Acts chapter 17, there's the occasion of when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So when you look at the passage in Romans chapter 1 that Terry read a moment ago, specifically when Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel, there's one of those words, to the gospel, the good news of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. To refer to Jesus as the son of God was to rob Caesar of one of his highest titles. But yet in this opening of this letter, he does just that because it's the truth. And he goes on, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So really, uh, just in the opening of this letter, Paul has already written a treasonous statement. 
And if this fell among the hands of the Romans, there'd be a lot of explaining to do, as Desi said to Lucy. Suetonius wrote, the Roman historian, he wrote that Julius Caesar was a descendant of the goddess Venus. The poet Virgil said the same of Augustus and Nero, who was Caesar at the time that Paul wrote Romans, he was referred to as, quote, the good God. You know, we look at our political leaders today, we criticize them, we laud and praise them. But in those days, the Caesars, they were divine. They were seen as divine people. But yet, Paul comes along and the Christians go along, not preaching the good news of the Roman Empire, of their Lord Caesar, their Savior, but of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So you look at all this and you go, why would Paul risk it, right? That, that, that many of us are willing to assume a measure of risk, right? Uh, when I was a kid and mom was teaching me how to drive, first of all, daddy never let me learn to drive on an automatic. You had to learn to drive on a stick shift. And he'd tell me, he'd say, son, you learn how to drive a stick shift, you can drive anything on the face of the earth. Airplane pilot didn't believe me when I tried to take over, so apparently it doesn't work in the air. But anyway, he made me learn on a stick shift, and, and, and uh, you know, this one time, I, I was a light turned green, and I was about to go, and mom yelled, stop, and I did, because a, would you believe it that a car ran a red light? She said, did you not see that car? I said, well, yeah, but it was green. And then she taught me the lesson. Honey, you got to watch how other people drive. That's probably why I'm so critical of every other driver, and I think I'm the best in the world. Because, you know, well, anyway, you don't care. So, okay. When we drive, and we've taught our daughter this, uh, you got to watch everybody else. Yes, the stop sign may say stop, but not everybody stops. Yes, your light may be green and there's red, but they're still going to run it. So, you, okay, we understand driving. There's a measure of risk that we're going to assume. And then there are some times when we are careless in our risk. That is, we just act without any forethought. And sometimes we may be lucky and it may go all well. Sometimes it may be an utter failure. And then there are the times that we have calculated risk, where we sit and we look at all the angles of something and, and we go, I think it's worth the risk. And Paul was making a calculated risk. And he'd already suffered so much. And most people would go, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that, right? And this is what we have been taught to do. We have been taught to be so nice, just, just don't say anything. Right? You, you don't want to upset the apple cart. Just, just, just don't say anything. And so often when we as Christians should speak up, we don't. But have you noticed that everybody else doesn't think twice about speaking up? And yet sometimes we are the most silent when we, I don't think we should be the noisiest, but we should definitely not be afraid to say who we are. Uh, I used to always hate it when people would go, what do you do? <laughs> Gosh, because I know as soon as I say what I do, they're going, oh, right? And they're going to kind of retreat. I've seen it a million times. What do you do? And I used to go, mm. uh, well, I, uh, you know, you try to think of some inventive way of, of saying it. And, but now you just, I'm a preacher. Really? Yeah. 
Some people still retreat. And I'm like, and it's funny, they'll say something and they'll turn to me and they'll go, sorry about that. I'm like, you don't have to apologize to me. I mean, if you want to apologize for what you said, you need to apologize to God. I'm not, I'm not going to judge you. And I often say, I guarantee you I've heard worse. I have. But Paul was not afraid in the least bit to say what he believed about Jesus. He wasn't afraid in the least bit to proclaim what he was willing to proclaim. And the reason was because of the resurrection of Christ. That's what verse 4 says, as a matter of fact. Declared Jesus was to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Sometimes something so monumental happens that you cannot be silent. And to Paul, that was the resurrection. To Paul, that was the vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Those wonders, that, the, those miracles were reason enough for him to risk it all. And look at verses 16 and 17, if your Bible's open to Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Now, why would he have ever wanted to be ashamed? Let me make some suggestions. First of all, the king that Paul worshipped was rejected by his own countrymen and was actually put to death by his own countrymen. Secondly, he wasn't born in the royal palace. He was born in the stable of all places. His mother and his father were not the aristocracy. They were your common peasants. Well, how do you know they were peasants? Well, when you read in the Gospel of Luke, when they go to make the offering, they offer the offering uh, that God made provision for poor people to offer. So you've got all these reasons that people might have been ashamed. And maybe sometimes we are ashamed of this because... Right After all, we don't want to be thought of as different. We don't want to be thought of as weird. <laughs> Who cares? As a matter of fact, we are called to be different. Not weird. So some of you, back off that a little bit, if you would, please. I won't say names. Jacob, but... Okay. Verse 5 in Romans... Chapter 1, he says, through Jesus, we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. I want, I want to point this out. Uh, in the New Testament, any Christian was referred to as a saint. Any and every Christian. Paul addresses all the Roman Christians as called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that you see time and again is this notion of obedience to the faith. Uh, for your obedience has become known to all, therefore I'm glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all the nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. A lot of times when we think of faith, we think of something that we believe. 
You know, oh, I believe that, yeah. Uh, faith to the, to the Christians in the first century, it entailed, yes, believing, but it entailed also, okay, because I believe this, this is what I'm going to do. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. So what, what are his commandments? What does he bid me do? Because I'm going to do it. You know, we're not just going to go, oh, yeah, I believe that. Sounds good. That's some people's definition of faith, but it's not the biblical definition of faith. So, okay, if your Bible's open, uh, look with me beginning at verse 8, and we'll kind of cover some of this stuff through. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Uh, That's pretty amazing when you think about it. They didn't have 24-hour news. They didn't have Twitter or Facebook so they could talk about their faith and everybody could know it, but it was known throughout the whole world. And uh, Paul wanted to commend them for that. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now he'd never been there. He knew a few of them that were there, but he had never been there. You know, you don't have to know somebody to pray for him. You don't have to know somebody to pray for him. You know, you, you, as Paul may not have known all them, he heard enough about him that he said, you know, he'll pray for him. Many of us have been praying for our Ukrainian and Romanian brothers and sisters and the Polish brothers and sisters because of everything going on in Ukraine. Because many of them have had to flee that country. Some have gone to Poland, some have gone to Romania. And uh, we don't know any, I mean, I don't. I, I know some of you may know some of the folks over there. But we pray for them because of what we've heard. We pray for them because we care. But what Paul prays for specifically is that, verse 10, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may encourage, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. You may have heard the proverb, iron sharpens iron. Uh, Paul wanted to go and excite them and, 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 and to, 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 to set them on fire in the faith, but he knew that he would receive that in return. Have you ever gone to visit somebody? Uh, I remember this one time, and you'll have to pardon me, I have to, I have to do the impersonation, not to insult. But there was one of our elderly members at the first ministry I was at, Miss June Strasner was her name, and she had contracted polio when she was a young lady, uh, a young mother, excuse me, and she was confined to a wheelchair. But now Miss June Strasner, she was in her 60s, 70s. Well, her mother still lived by herself. Uh, she, she couldn't see, and she didn't hear that well, but she had had a stay in the hospital, a surgery. And so Miss June had asked me if I'd go visit her mother. And I thought, yeah, I mean, you know, a, a widow woman lives by herself, bless her heart. She can't see, she can't hear that well. I, I might just go over. Maybe I can just encourage her a little bit. So I go over and I knock on the door and this guy comes up behind me. He says, can I help you? I said, oh yeah, I'm here to see Miss Dustin. So she said, who are you? And I told him who I was, a preacher. Uh-huh. You know. And uh, he said, oh, okay. Uh, apparently this neighbor of hers watched out for her. So she came to the door. Now she had this Southern accent, sound about like this. I, lo- I could have I just listened to her talk all day because I love the way 
that her accent was. And so she said, well, come on in. And I did. And, and she was feeling her way around and, and sat down. I said, well, I heard you had a surgery recently. I mean, up in the upper 80s having a surgery, that could be pretty risky. She said, I did. I said, well, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm fine. And then she said that she said, my father looks after me. She's talking about God. She said, they had me on that bed and the doctor said, now miss it, I forget her name. We're going to take good care of you. She said, I don't need you to take good care of me. My father's going to take care of me. And I thought, wow. And so as we talked more, she pointed over, there's a window in her kitchen. And she said, every morning I go to that window and I look up and I say, good morning, father. And just to hear the way she talked about God and to hear the way that, uh, uh, that she viewed God as her father and how dependent she was. I was like, I walked out of there thinking, here I was, I was going to go and try and bless this sweet lady, but I walked away blessed. The encourager became the encouraged. And so I think that's really what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to go and encourage them, knowing that he would be encouraged by them. Okay, verse 13. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Everybody has their way of referring to people that are not like themselves. Greeks and barbarians to the Jewish apostle Paul uh, would have been a way to designate, you know, we think if you call somebody a barbarian today, you're talking about how poor manners they have. But in that time, the Greeks were highly educated people and the barbarians were not very educated. And so that's how they use those terms then. It it spoke of social class as well as standing. Uh, And one of the things that was really prided then was power and privilege. Uh, There were significant orders of social class in Rome. For example, you have uh, the senatorial class, the patricians, the equestrian class, or those who were the knights. Uh, You have municipal aristocracies, uh, the plebeians, and other free people, and the freedmen. The freedmen were the ones who were once slaves, and they've obtained their freedom. Paul was a Roman citizen himself, so he would have fallen under the plebeian category, uh, as they would probably call them, the plebs. So the patricians were the upper echelons of the social class. The plebs, they're just common people. So to the Jews, everyone that was not Jewish was a Gentile. And so to the Romans, everyone who wasn't Roman was probably something else too. So, okay. This unashamed Paul was going to the capital of the empire, a sophisticated city, to preach about a Galilean carpenter prophet executed by the Roman government in the most humiliating manner possible, the crucifixion. And after all, when you go to the capital of the civilized world, your message 
had better appeal to the educated or it's just not going to fly, or, or, or to those in the know. It needs to offer political solutions to pressing needs or it won't be heard. Uh, it had better offer some answers to the massive problems of slavery, greed, lust, and violence, or the people in Rome won't listen. But Paul's main message didn't directly address these issues. His main message focused on the main need of every human being, whether the most religious Jew or the most educated worldly immoral Greek, and that is the need to be reconciled to God. That's what the gospel does. It brings us back together with God. When we have faith in Christ, when we obey the gospel, the obedience to the faith, we are reconciled to God. So I was reading about this practice that, uh, that occurs in the Middle East uh, among the Bedouin tribes. Uh, the custom, and I, if I mispronounce it, and you know better than correct me afterwards, but it's called sulha, and it means a meal between enemies for the purposes of reconciliation. Okay, so what happens is, if there's a conflict between two parties, it could be individuals or, or, or families, whatever the case is, um, if it's one of the occasions that someone is hurt or killed, uh, you know, then blood revenge may swiftly follow from one tribe to the next. So before this happens, or even after it happens, there's an attempt at reconciliation made. And here's how it goes. The two families involved in the conflict, or the two people, whichever it may be, they, they come together at a meal, a neutral place at a table. And the guilty party confesses that they wronged the other, and the wronged party accepts the apology. Then they negotiate what's called a peace price. Okay, so let's say you and I, right, we're at odds with each other. So we've got a, 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 a neutral place that we're to meet, and someone's there to mediate. I sit on one side of the table, you sit on the other, and guess what? We are looking at one another with vitriol and hatred. And the mediator lays out the full story of the thing. One of us was in the right. One of us was in the wrong. Every one of us, when we come to the Lord, we are admitting, I was in the wrong. You are in the right. The first step is admitting you have a problem. That's the first of those 12 steps in AA. The first step is admitting you have a problem. But in this custom of reconciliation, the person who did the wronging will own up to it. A lot of people don't like to own up to their own misgivings. But it's essential in this case. So the, the one that did wrong will own up and will confess, yes, I did it, it was wrong then the party that was wrong will accept the apology and they'll negotiate a peace. But because you did this, here's the price, here's the recompense that's owed. Now, it may last for a few days, but once the agreement has been reached, these two parties and their families are fully reconciled. Uh, and, and it's as if it never happened. And here's the thing, in this tradition, you can never bring it up again because it's done. It's behind you. Now, when we are reconciled to God through Christ. I want you to notice where the standing is and what it goes from being to being. 
Okay, Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. I love these verses. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Full stop, full stop. That is, pro- if you were to ask me, Stephen, what's your favorite Bible passage? Romans 5, 8, every day of the week. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what it says. God doesn't wait for you to be good enough. God doesn't wait for you to try hard enough. Think of your lowest point in life when you've been your most misbehaved, you've been your most rebellious, you've been the worst version of yourself you ever could have been. This verse says that is when Jesus died for you. This is how God demonstrates his love for you. So he, there's, there's no waiting till we try hard enough. God loves us at our most miserable. Okay, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I want you to notice the before and the after picture. You ever watch these shows where they do a before and an after and and the whole show is about the makeover, right? Uh, uh, For the longest time, Chip and Joanna, Fixer Upper. Okay, I had to look to my wife. So Fixer Upper, y'all seen this, some of you, right? Shiplap and a farm sink. That's the only thing I remember. Every episode, shiplap and a farm sink, okay? They'd take these dilapidated, broken down old houses. You put shiplap and a farm sink in it, brand spanking new. Okay, well, they showed these falling apart, dilapidated houses, and Chip and Joanna and their whole crew would go in, remake the whole thing, add some shiplap and a farm sink, uh, and then after they got the big screen, are you ready? Are you ready? And then they roll it back, and you're like, man, that looks great. Right? So you got the before and the after. And in this passage, we have a view of the before and the after. Us before Jesus and us after Jesus. Before, notice this, we are sinners. Okay? Underline that. Well, if your Bible's open, underline that. Sinners. Okay. Now let's keep going down. We shall be saved from wrath. That's before. Okay? Before Christ, we're sinners. We are prone to the wrath of God. The next sentence, we are enemies of God. Now you're thinking, I've never been an enemy of God in my whole life. Well, if we are outside of Christ, we've made our choice. We are standing with the enemies. Wow. Sinners, prone to wrath, enemies. That's before Jesus. But look at after. Much more than having been justified by his blood. Justified is a churchy word. I don't think most folks know what it means outside of the church context. I don't even think a lot of Christians know what it means. So here's, here's a, a, a term that I like to use that's a synonym. Um, think of acquittal right? The legal term acquittal. So you're brought up on charges and you stand before the judge and everything goes on. Well, the judge acquits you of all charges. In this case, however, we are guilty of the charges, but because we have faith and we obey the gospel, charges are dropped. We are acquitted. That's what that word justified means. 
justified, we shall be saved, we are reconciled. Reconciled appears one, two, three times, three or four times in this passage. So notice the before picture is one of hostility. The after picture is one of peace. Before Jesus, sinners, prone to the wrath of God, enemies, after Jesus, we can be justified, saved, could be reconciled. So having faith, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, having a willingness to make that confession, that is never anything we should be ashamed of. Why not? Why don't you do this? Why don't you participate in that? Because Jesus. That would be a pretty good reason if you're a Christian in college, in high school, in middle school, even as adults in the workplace. Why don't you ever? Because Jesus. That's a good reason to do and not do certain things. But we make the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We repent of our... Now, repentance is the hardest part of salvation because we're always going to repent throughout our lives. When you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you'll never make a mistake again. You'll never sin again. But it means that we put ourselves in the right relationship with God. Then baptism. When we are immersed with Christ into the waters of baptism, we reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus And we come up cleansed of sin. We come up forgiven. So if you've never done that today, you have the opportunity to do so. If you don't like the crowds, that's okay. Just find one of us, me or someone, Gary. If you're curious and you want to know more, we'd be glad to have that conversation too. But if you... Walk away with nothing else. I want you to walk away knowing God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you at your worst. God loves you at your lowest. But he doesn't want you to stay there. But it's up to you to go to him and to leave there. And if you wish to do so publicly this morning, just come to the front while we stand and sing.